the doctrine of salvation in terms of the five solas. So we study these every other year at uh, Reformation Month. So actually this coming Reformation Month, this will be the topic. So we're going to get an overview it again tonight. And like I said last week, when we were walking through that, if you've been in the church, um, I shouldn't say much that's new um, in this first section. Now we might get into more new things or different ways of thinking about things as we get into the next part. But so far, this should be very basic stuff. So we're going to make sure we're all on the same page of what's going on with the five solas. And, of course, sola is the Latin word for what? Alone. The five alones. Now, it's important to note that when we say there are five alones, that seems a little contradictory. Because are you alone if there's five? Okay, no. (laughs) That's not what we mean by these things. They're not... You know, this one truth is the most important truth, and it stands alone. That's not what we're saying. In each of these scenarios, one of the alones is the only answer to a particular question. And so with regard to, so let's just look at this overview. All right, what is the authority for faith and practice? Well, Scripture alone is the authority for faith and practice. Well, why does God save us? Well, that's by grace alone. It's not by merit. It's not by works. It's not because I'm a really good person. That's by God's grace alone. Well, how do I participate in salvation? Or another way to ask this is, how am I justified? Through faith alone. What causes salvation? Or how can I be saved? Emphasizing the how part. How is that even possible? What can make salvation happen? Christ alone is the only answer to that question. Why does all of this happen? To what end does God save us? Another way to ask that. Why are we here? It's for God's glory. So that's the point of these five alone statements. Scripture alone, grace alone, um, faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Did anybody still think of Jacob a year and a half ago doing the... That'll never go away. I don't believe it. I wonder if he remembers it as well as we do. Okay, so let's dive into Scripture alone. So first and foremost, we're not going to go into this tonight, but when we say Scripture, we do specifically mean the 66 books contained in this volume. So you would have a copy of the Bible. I presume everyone in this room has that same type of Bible. I don't mean translation. I mean it has 66 books instead of some have 85 or 92 or depends on how you break up the Apocrypha or you have a you know, Book of Mormon. We're not talking about that. We're talking about these 65 books bound together. 66. Yeah, not, yeah, wow. Not committing heresy right here. 66 books. Yeah, it's just Jonah. No, so, no, 66 books bound together, and what do we call this format? Do you know? Codex. Very good memory. As opposed to, technically the word Bible doesn't mean codex, it means something else. Scroll. So we don't technically have 66 scrolls here. We have one single codex, and that is what we're talking about when we say scripture alone. So let's fill in that first set of blanks. The Bible speaks with God's authority. God's authority. What does it mean to have authority in the first place? You're in charge. You're in charge. Okay. So in my house, um, 
there's a lot of fighting for authority between the children. You thought I was going to say me and my wife. No, no, okay. So between the children, especially between the boys, and often between the boys as a unit and Abby. And so what happens is the boys do something, and Abby wants to come in and tell them what to do. Well, does she have the authority to do that? Okay, so we could say she's the oldest. She's certainly the most mature. Um, by not just their age gap, by like double their age gap, she's more mature. But do you think they care one bit about the legitimacy of her intrinsic authority? No. As far as the boys are concerned, um, what level is Abby on? Theirs. <laughs> so where do they find the authority in the house? Parents. All right, parents. Particular, okay, so I have a dad voice. Um, I don't think I've ever used it, you know. No, one time I used it in front of someone else, scared a grown boy. But uh, my dad voice is intimidating. And the kids know the dad voice. And uh, the dad voice gets results. You know what I'm talking about? And so I can tell the boys to do something, you know, especially if I snap the finger. Like, and I can't even do that with Abby. If I snap the finger and use this voice with her, she's going to go to her bedroom and cry. You know, like, <laughs> you know, breaks. But with the boys, you kind of have to do that. So I snap the finger, I use the dad voice, and they, they straighten up because what have I emphasized by using the dad voice and snapping my finger? I'm emphasizing authority. Right? Not just respect. I'm emphasizing I have authority to tell you what to do. So Abby, no matter how loud she gets, I've even seen her try to snap her finger. You know, it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't cause that thing to happen in her. But if I tell her, and she loves it when I say this, that, all right, go tell the boys that daddy said, and then she lights up. Because now she's fixing to get to go exercise what? Authority. It's not technically her authority. But she's getting to use it, you know, because as long as I'm ascribed to it, Whatever she says carries my level of authority, unless she adds to it. As long as she doesn't add to it, it carries authority because it came from me. Now, that's what we're saying with God's work. So how much authority does the Bible have? Every bit of authority that God has. Why? Because he's the author. The Bible speaks with God's authority because he is its author. So I know if we were talking about Catholicism, there's always this attempt from Catholic apologists to, to fight um, sola scriptura, and their main argument is, well, does the Bible teach sola scriptura? The answer to that is quite robustly, but there's a very basic and very simple explanation for how the Bible teaches this. How much authority does the Bible ascribe to God? Do you see that in Scripture? I mean, in any particular passages? I mean, even just talking about Jesus, he tells the storm to stop and stops. I mean, this is what God has. The Bible also says it's God's Word. So what is the Bible intrinsically teaching us? That the Scriptures have the same level of authority that God does. Consequently, God is the only thing that has that level of authority. So there's an inherent... Um, de facto belief in sola scriptura just by believing 
that the Bible's inspired. You can't believe the Bible's inspired unless you believe in sola scriptura. We own this doctrine completely. You don't have it if you view that any other way. Does that mean you follow the logic of that? That's just one, one version of the argument. All right, so the Bible speaks with God's authority because he is its author. Second, because of that, no other human document sits in the same category as Scripture. No other human document. And because of time and because I feel like you know this one really well, I'm not looking at those Scriptures, but feel free to go check them. We will look at some of the others. So no other human document sits in the same category as Scripture. So I'll give some examples there. So tradition. Jesus directly compares tradition and God's Word in the New Testament. And what does he tell the Pharisees when they elevate the scriptures or elevate tradition higher than scriptures. You do error in teaching the traditions of men rather than the... You're obeying man rather than God. That, that's exactly how he views that. So tradition, confessions. I love confessions. We love tradition. But that doesn't in any sense mean we ever, to any degree, put these things in the same category. Our popes and councils, spiritualism and mysticism. So during the time of the Reformation, when this was first being explained, and I even encounter this from time to time in, in normal conversation, is people feel like the Holy Spirit has more authority than the Scriptures. Let's think through that one. The Holy Spirit has more authority than the Scriptures. Well, if we were just asking a direct does question, does the Holy Spirit have more authority than the scriptures. Okay, I see where you're going. Before we go there, though, all right, so te technically, right, well, it's the same because he's God. So if the Holy Spirit's God, he's got ultimate authority. But how much authority does the Bible have? It has that authority. Why? Because God said it. So in other words, the Holy Spirit said everything that's in the scriptures. So, which version of the Holy Spirit has more authority? The version that wrote the scriptures or the version of the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you? <laughs> you see what I did there, didn't you? What am I saying? Does God contradict himself? No. Does he change? No. Is he inconsistent? No. We don't abrogate scripture like other religions do. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's not going to give us new doctrine today that changes what he's revealed in Christ. Ultimately, in terms of the persons of the Trinity, the New Testament is not ultimately the revelation of the Spirit. It's the revelation of who? Well, it's, it's from the Father. Technically, it's the revelation of Christ. And so and we call him what, after all? The Word. Right, and what does the Spirit come to do? Not to glorify himself, but to glorify the Son. So the Holy Spirit's never going to give us anything beyond or greater than or different than what we get in the Scriptures. So not even spiritualism, spiritualism or mysticism can sit on the same category. Y'all with me on that? No, I know that was complicated. Right. That's that's actually the Second Peter one twenty one passage. Yeah. So. All right. Let's move on from that one. Scripture, like we we like our church because this is a fundamental thing for us. So I mean, we're Bible people. So just before I move on from that, just emphasizing. Oh, I got a question on that one. Oh yeah, go go ahead. So I've noticed from you and your preaching, I've, been, I've seen a lot of pastors. A lot of people like to quote other Christians saying. 
notice you don't do that very often. I don't know if I've ever seen you do that. You know, like C.S. Lewis said this, and love. Yeah. I've seen that. I, I do it from time to time. Okay. Um, I think there's a time, like just like the illustration I gave with my kids, like that's not scripture. No. But I only share it to help you think about scripture. And so I wouldn't inherently say there's anything wrong with, with quoting someone. Sure. I, there's an illustration from D.A. Carson that we'll use again in a minute. Um, and I use every single time I talked about justification by faith, period. Um, I'm not saying it's on par with scripture, but it's just a beautiful illustration. I cannot use it. Every time I get there, I don't always give them credit for it though, so I guess I'm throwing that out right now. It's not, it's not mine. <laughs> I'm just plagiarizing. That's what happens. Very good. Hey, Carson got it from somebody. I think he made this one up. This particular illustration. Well, he got it from the Bible, but you, you'll see what I'm saying. I think you've heard it before. Okay, let's keep going. Grace alone. Let's go, let's go to 1 John. I want you to see this. So we talked about a little bit about the attributes of God in the first session. We didn't go into that deeply. We just summarized all of the attributes by saying God was the absolute being. Um, I want us to think about one particular attribute that the scripture gives us about God. Now just name some of them real quick. Attributes of God. Things about who he is, what, what he's like. Okay, omnipotent. Omniscient, so omnipotent is all-powerful. Omniscient is all-knowing. What else would you say? Omnipresent. Omnipresent. Okay, all-present. All, all the omnis. Uh, all the uh, Well, really, he's omnis, right? That's the whole point of him being the absolute being. If you want the fancy term, that's aseity. He's the absolute of all of this. So he's, he's all-power. He's all-infinity. Infinity. He's all-eternality. And what's more interesting is what is God made of? God. Just God. It's not like he's a lot of pieces. You put all the pieces together, and that makes God. God is just God. So really, and this is where it gets trippy, um, God's power and his infinity are the same part of him. Maybe I can't really use the word part, though, right? Because there's no parts. His infinity and his eternality are the same. We could say he's infinitely eternal he's eternally all-powerful he's omnisciently loving oh think about that what's omniscience mean all-knowing he's all-knowingly loving oh wow okay so let's look at this attribute um first john 4 8 anyone who does not love god does not know god or sorry anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's not saying God is just loving. It's saying God is love. This is part of his character. So think about this. Everything we love, we love for a reason. Right? Can you think of anything in your life that you love for, not, for no reason at all? I can say I love M&M's. Right? Is there a reason I love M&M's? They're good. They, they, they draw me. All right, I love my wife. Is there a reason I love my wife? Absolutely, there's reasons, right? Well, what, we, what about this concept of unconditional love? Aren't we supposed to love things unconditionally? We don't. <laughs> Does God love unconditionally? 
What do we mean by that? What we mean by unconditional is simply that we aren't the condition, right? That's all we really mean. There is a condition still. God's love is completely conditioned on one thing, himself, his character. God's love for us is based on his character, not our value. This is part of who he is. So if God's going to love you as long as he's loving... How long is he going to love you? Well, until he quits being loving. It's not a category for us in Christian theology. So God loves us based on his character, not our values. A lot of scriptures here. I do want you to see the Romans one, though. Go go look at Romans 5. And Paul is emphasizing this very heavily in this section uses several different words to describe us. So, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the repentant or the good or the righteous. He specifically died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to die. You hear a scenario, right? It'd be hard to give your life to save someone else. It happens, right? But it'd be a different thing to give your life for your enemy. That's what he's getting at. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when did Jesus die for us? While we were still sinners? Or did he wait until we were cleaned up? Specifically, it's emphasizing the while you were still sinner part. Right? Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy. There's no repentance there. There's not even faith there. There's, there's nothing you've contributed positively to this arrangement. At this point, it is just his love based on his character. All right? Number two, salvation is God's idea, not man's. God's idea. For the sake of time, we'll move quickly. The Romans 3.25 there is just emphasizing that Jesus on the cross was God's plan, not ours. Number three, we do not merit <coughs> salvation in any sense. There might be two R's in that word. I have no idea. There's not? Just one? Just one. That's just one word. One R. All right. We do not merit. Fortunately, spelling is not on the list of requirements to get into the kingdom of heaven. We do not merit salvation in any sense. All of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 10, the particular verse, not by works so that no one can boast creates a metric for you, a litmus test. Can you boast in how you got saved you did it wrong, if the answer was yes? The answer is no, my only boast is Christ. The answer is good, yes, you are saved. You don't merit salvation, period. You contribute nothing to the grace alone category. So we're asking that question, why would God save me? Grace, grace alone 
is the answer. All right, number three, faith alone. So faith alone is one of my um, favorite ones to talk about. And this is one that gets us into trouble when we start talking about God's sovereignty and all of that stuff. And so I'm going to say this as clearly as I think it can be said in the first point. Justification, now before we go further, somebody want to venture a quick definition of justification? What do we mean by that? Declared righteous, particularly in God's eyes. So not because you are, but how, how do you get the status of good person instead of bad person? How do you get that status before God? Through right. It's through the blood. So we talked about propitiation last week as part of the work of Christ, that God's wrath, his anger against sin, is poured out on the cross. So it's removed. But then furthermore, he applies righteousness to us. Jesus did everything right. We get credit for that. All right, so how is it that we call that justification? So your sins taken away, Jesus' righteousness given to you. It's like, remember, it's like putting on a new self. Like you're wearing this cloak that's not yours, but you get to wear it, and it's righteousness. came from Jesus Christ. How do you get it on your body? How does it become yours? How do you get justified? That's what we're asking here. Justification is conditional. Conditional. There is a condition. Is God's grace conditional? No, unless you mean him. It's conditioned on God's character, which we usually, that's what we mean when we say unconditional. But is justification unconditional? No. There is a condition. There is a condition for justification. There's two scriptures that say it very plainly. Let's look at the first one. Um, Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Can't be said any more clear than that. You're justified by what? Faith. You're justified by faith. You contribute nothing to the grace alone question. You contribute something to the justification question, and the piece we contribute, is the piece we contribute in conversion, is called faith. That is the condition. So justification is conditional, and I guess we should have put a comma there. That condition is faith. Not works, not goodness, not good works, not, there's no list there. It's just the simple concept of faith. The whole book of Galatians is about, if you add to that, well, salvation's about faith and these other things. Then Paul ultimately says, you know, by adding, you first have to subtract. And you can only add anything to the equation first by subtracting faith or Jesus from the equation. And if you do that, what do you end up with? No salvation. So justification is conditional. That condition is faith. We exercise faith when we trust Christ alone for salvation. So famous Romans Road passage, if you grew up in the church and were ever taught evangelism, you learned this verse, Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the word belief in the Bible is the same as the word faith. Those aren't two different words in Greek. It's the same word. And English, just depending on what we're talking about, they're the same concept. So we believe 
in Jesus. That's how we're saved. So we confess faith. So we've done the whole um, grammatical analogy before. Um, faith. So just make it simple, Brian. Faiths, which is how it would be in Greek. In English, we say has faith in. That's not how the Greek word works. It's just a standalone verb. Brian faiths Jesus. Right, so verb, it's something we do. Verb. Yeah, I'm working with it. Verb, and we usually just replace this with the word trust. Not the, maybe a better English word, honestly, because we there's so much going wrong with the word faith culturally. Right, what would we call this part of the sentence? The Brian. Subject. Subject. So who does the action here? Brian does, or you do. In, in your own sentence, you do the action of that verb. All right, what would this be called? Object. Now, we're not going to get on all the fancy kinds of objects, but it's just an object. Now, can Brian be saved if Brian's not the subject of this verb? No. It's conditional. Brian has to be the subject of this verb. But can Brian be saved... If that's not the object of the verb, no. absolutely not. No, this doesn't say anything. Brian faiths. I mean, that could say himself. Brian faiths his works. Brian faiths his, I don't know, physique. Eminem. <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. I don't know what happened there. Everybody's like, uh, does he really? <laughs> okay, so let's go back to Jesus. <clears throat> Even though this is required, I have to be the subject of this verb or I can't be saved. What part of this saves me? Jesus. Jesus does. Not, not the Brian. The faith is just how I get some of this. This saves. Now, this is where we go through the illustration. And just in case you haven't heard it, let's do the, the short version. So Passover, you know, remember that celebration, right? In the Old Testament, what are they doing at Passover? Blood on the doorpost. Blood on the doorpost. So we got two Hebrew guys um, standing in their front yard, night of the Passover. Right, Mr. Brown, good Hebrew name. Mr. Smith, another good Hebrew name, being facetious. So it's the night of the 10th plague. So the idea is the angel of death is going to come through not just Egypt, but even the Israelites that live in the land of Goshen. They're all going to have the angel of death come through their homes, come down the street, enter their house, and kill the firstborn child in every home. But Moses told the Israelites there was a way to be passed over. Or what did they have to do to be passed over? Make the blood. So let's have a red one. Oh, nope. Every time my kids touch this. All right, so Mr. Brown, he smeared the blood up there. Very faithful, faithful Israelite. Mr. Brown's standing out in his front yard. The sun's going down. I mean, this is going to happen soon. They're just taking care of business, getting everything wrapped up. Mr. Brown looks over at Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith is sweating. He's really upset about this. He's nervous. And Mr. Brown says to Mr. Smith, man, what is going on? What's the deal? Mr. Smith says, dude, the angel of death's coming through tonight. This is the scariest <clears throat> thing you could possibly imagine. You've seen these plagues? This is crazy. 
Mr. Brown says, dude, we, Moses told us how to escape. You sacrifice the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost. We'll be passed over. Simple as that. We're fine. Mr. Smith says, dude, I don't know if I have enough faith in that. Really? Just put some blood on the doorpost? That's going to be enough for this? I don't know, man. I'm just, I have my doubts about how effective that blood is. Mr. Brown, at this point, gets a little panicky, realizes Mr. Smith might not be doing this. So Mr. Brown says, well, Mr. Smith, I mean, I know you get your doubts, but you're, you're going to sacrifice that animal, right? You're, you do plan on doing this and actually putting the door, blood on the door, like, because Mr. Brown's thinking about taking some of his and going over there trying to do it for him or something. I mean, he's, he's nervous. But Mr. Smith looks back and says, no, dude, I'm not saying I'm not going to do it. I'm just saying I have my faith in it small. In fact, we, we just did it a minute ago. Look over there, see? It's over there. I just don't know if I got enough faith. I'm just, I'm just, I'm nervous. Just leave it at that. That's all I'm saying. Mr. Brown's not incredibly satisfied with that answer, but at least there's blood on the doorpost. So he goes inside. Mr. Smith, still sweating, kind of nervous about what's going to happen, goes back to his house, goes to bed to wake up in the morning. Where is there a dead firstborn child? And neither home. Alive, alive. Why? Because the blood is what saved them. Not the quality of the faith that used the blood. And so back to my verb. I don't care how good this is or how good this is. If that is your object, you're saved. You got that? So biblical concept of faith. How much faith does it take to move a mountain? What's he getting at there? Itty bitty tiny little mouth. That's salvation. If you've got actual faith, <coughs> salvation is present. That's what we mean by faith alone. That's the condition, but that's all it is. You trust Christ. So we exercise, did we fill that in? Yeah. We exercise faith when we trust Christ alone for salvation. In other words, faith is a response to the message of the gospel. Faith is a response to the message of the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So we hear the gospel, we can exercise faith. That's justification by faith alone. Next, Christ alone. I'll work through these quick. We don't have a lot of time. Jesus is the only mediator for salvation. Only mediator for salvation. go-between. In fact, the passage referenced there says literally that. There is only one mediator between us and God, and it's Jesus Christ. Can't be any more explicit, so you can go read that one on your own. Next, Jesus is the only means by which God's wrath is removed. That word propitiation that we emphasized last week, so we won't re-emphasize it tonight, but God's wrath is taken away by Christ. Can anybody else do that? Why can he do that? He's God incarnate and he's perfect. He's both a perfect human being and the God, God himself. He can remove the wrath. No one else can do that. Number three, Jesus is the only obedient man who can satisfy God's righteous requirement. So did Jesus obey his father? To what point? Until what end? Death on a cross. Obedience to the end. The only time we ever see what kind of looks like a struggle to do that is where? 
Garden of Gethsemane. And what's that prayer? There's another way, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless not my will be done, but yours. And Jesus willingly, even joyfully, goes to the cross in our place. He's perfectly obedient to the Father, therefore he can satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. That's what we see in Romans 8, 4, but God's satisfying that righteous requirement in Christ in us. And that's what's beautiful about that passage. All right, let's hit the last one. This is the one we usually work quickly through, so I want to work slowly this time. All right, to God's glory alone. Go to Ephesians um, chapter 1, and I've referenced this before, but we're going to look at a different part of this sentence. So I've said 3 through 14. 3 through 14 in Greek is one sentence because it's one thought. So the Apostle Paul is just writing this one elaborate idea. And we break it down. Your English Bible will have five or six sentences here. In Greek, it's not. It's literally just one sentence because Paul's just got to get it all out in one breath. Um, I don't know if you do that, but I do that from time to time. And I think Paul even had to take a breath to finish this thought. But it's all one consistent thought. And I want you to see how it's organized. Now, last time we looked at this, we were looking at it for a completely different reason. So you may remember what that reason was. So he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, how has God the Father blessed us? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of glorious grace. So why did God adopt and predestine you? We're not getting into all that, but why did he do it according to this passage? To the praise of his glorious grace. Who's going to get glory for this? He is. You remember the Exodus narrative. And he told Pharaoh, or told Moses about Pharaoh very early on, I'm going to make myself look good compared to Pharaoh. That's what he's doing. That's why sin glorifies God. That's the first part of Romans. Sin itself glorifies God because it gives him an object to manifest his justice against. Makes him look good. So you can make God look good by being a sinner and receiving God's wrath, or... You can make God look good by being a recipient of his grace. Either way, the end is the glorious grace being praised. But that's not where he stops. That's only partway through the sentence. In him, that is the beloved, um, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What's happening again? Praise of glory. Whose glory? God's glory. Well, this was talking about God the Son. The first one was God the Father. He chose us. He 
predestined us in love. He set the stage. It's his plan that is unfolding. Starting in verse 7, we talk about the beloved. That is the Son. It's through him, through his blood, we have redemption. It's through him that all things will be united. And all of this happens to the praise of the glory of God. It's all to manifest his goodness. Now, quick side note. Is God getting more glory than he already had? No. We're not creating new glory for God. He's revealing his glory through us. It's all displaying who he is. This is the reason we exist. So number three, I'm picking up in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and faith in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. For what? To the praise of his glory. So it was set up, it followed three what? The persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's organized around the Trinity. But in each case, what's the Trinity do this for? What's the Father do it for? To the praise of his glory. What's the Son do it for? To the praise of his glory. Of his glory. What's the Spirit seal you and guarantee you for? For the praise of his glory. This is what salvation is about. Every work of salvation is ultimately a display of God's glory. So every work of salvation is ultimately a display of God's glory. Last point every work we do because of salvation will be for the glory of God. So think about the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others in such a way that they see your good works. But how's that verse in? So that your Father in heaven will be glorified. He receives the glory. Then, of course, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Big argument about freedom in Christ, but he ends it with whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, no matter what you're doing in life, do everything for the glory of God. That is our metric. It's what we're here for. It's not the glory of man. It's not so I can live longer. It's not so I can be just happier unless happiness is found in Christ. It's not for whatever end you think. It's for the glory of God. That's your purpose for being here. And there you go. That's the five solas. Any questions before we wrap up? I missed that time. God's glory. What was the first one? Every work of what? Every work of salvation. We could really say every work, period. But we're emphasizing in the five solas the work of salvation. So, all right, well, uh, it's five after. Let's uh, pray and we'll, we'll be done. Father, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity to study your word together. I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith, help us to understand the gospel in a way that changes who we are, transforms our very hearts. I pray that you would help us to think clearly about the scriptures, read them diligently and understand how they apply in each area of our life. Pray as we walk through these doctrines that you would help us to um, apply them to just the worldview that we have, to the decisions we make, to the um, direction we go in life. I pray that you would equip us to be good disciple makers so that we could make disciples of the name of Christ so that your name would be glorified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a good evening.